reaching that point of life where you're comfortable being you and you know that you're allowed to be you and that's okay and that you is not perfect you is not always on you is not always ready to do everything success actually is is right there it's right there in everyone's hand already and it is just the power to go you know what i'm allowed to be me that's enough it's enough in all the messiness Michelle Gunderhan is an author, successful magazine editor, and currently starring in the very Moorish BBC TV show, Interior Design Masters. She's not new to our screens, of course, having previously appeared on Grand Design's House of the Year and the Great Interior Design Challenge. And her calm, informed, but direct style have always been a real pleasure to watch. Prior to television, she had a successful career in publishing and was appointed Editor-in-Chief of L Decoration UK in 2004, winning Editor of the Year just seven years later. She's regularly included in the power list of influential Black Britons. But it's her first book called Happy Inside, How to Harness the Power of Home for Health and Happiness, published last year, that really drew me to Michelle. In it, she lays out a manifesto of how we can all live better by doing the small things well at home. How the everyday things we miss on a regular basis can have a disproportionate impact on our health and happiness. How we should start sweating the small stuff. Now, after a tough year of anxiety in our broken down old house while we waited for planning permission, I can attest to the fact that this stuff really matters and we should give ourselves permission. It's not indulgent. Permission to take the time to express ourselves on a more authentic version of ourselves in the place it matters most, at home. And interestingly, given that Michelle is the former editor of Elle Decoration, we talked a lot about just how futile following fashion or trends really is. How instead we should be following our own values, our innate values, defining what is important to us and not being swayed by magazines or social media or the next big thing. I found our conversation very stimulating, very practical, very helpful. And I really hope you do too. I must say first off the bat, I'm really, I've been really looking forward to this because I bought your book for my wife for Christmas and I ended up reading it first because it just rings true with, with so much that I've been gravitating towards and that I naturally um, am sort of pulled towards. So welcome to Self-Centered and thank you so much for, for being on today. I want to ask you the first question, which I ask all my guests, which to you, Michelle, what is success? Success is such a sticky word, isn't it? I think when we're younger or maybe less aware, we think it's something to do with money or fame or achievements or striving. And it's it's always something in the future. When I have done this, I'll be successful. When I've achieved this, I'll be successful. And then you kind of gradually, you realize that that's always going to be out of reach and it's completely external to you. And I'm sure I've done the same myself. It's like, well, when we've won this award or when I found that house or this, I don't know, whatever the thing is. But in you asking me that question, I realized actually the moment of success for me was when I realized I can say no to things, when it's okay to just go, 
actually, I am not having a good day today. I need to stop. I need to be still. I need to let someone down. And it was that came from a kind of, I suppose, reaching that point of life where you're comfortable being you and you know that you're allowed to be you and that's okay and that you is not perfect. You is not always on. You is not always ready to do everything at a, a timetable dictated by someone else. And so it was. it's a wonderful question because, yes, I think success actually is is right there. It's right there in everyone's hand already. And it is just the power to go, you know what? I'm allowed to be me. And that's that's enough. It's enough in all the messiness. I try and be very practical with this podcast because it can be the, the themes and the subject matter that I, I cover tend, can be quite ethereal at times. And I try and make it very practical that people can take what they hear from this and apply it to their lives. And I think it's really interesting what you say about having the possibility to choose and to say, actually, I can step back. But you don't get that for free. You know, let's be kind of authentic about this. You you kind of have to earn that. I think what you're talking about is a bigger point around following our authentic values, following what we feel is right for us. And that comes through certain things, actually, that you talk about in your book. I think around financial independence, minimalism, which you talk about, having the consumer, the independence from being a consumer, are those the kind of things that have allowed you to be in a position where you can now say no to things? It's a very good point. And um, I suppose my instinct at first was to say, oh, when you're younger, you don't know these things. And then I sort of sense checked myself and said, actually, I was thinking it isn't about age, but I think it is about experience. Because I was remembering this morning an occasion where I think shortly after my son had been born and I'd gone back to work, that a boss who shall remain nameless had set up a kind of panel debate. And I already live an hour and a half away from work. And yet she set it at something like 8.30. And I tried to explain to her, it's like, okay, I can do this, but this is really going to cause me problems because I have to set up childcare. And I've been asking someone to come to my house at sort of 6am. And she didn't want to know. And I remembered it this morning thinking about oh, the conversation we were about to have, because I looked at that situation and I thought I could have chosen there to say, I'm sorry, but I cannot do that. Or I'm sorry, but I will see you there an hour later. Or even I could have billed them for my childcare, which I didn't. And what I actually did was get myself in a completely stressy panic. I organized childcare. Of course, my train was delayed and I was texting her, apologizing. And it struck me this morning and I thought, my goodness, I would not do that now. I, I really wouldn't. And so what's the difference between now and then? It's a confluence of many things that's enabled me to go, you know what? If that woman is going to fire me from my job because I've said I need to get there an hour later, then so be it. But also knowing that there is no way that she could have fired me from the job for saying that, for exercising my rights to exist as the person that I was. And I remember being told once that like, if you always think something's your fault, it might well be the other person's. But if you always think something's someone else's fault, then you might need to look in the mirror. And again, I mean, sort of going back to your question, is it the confluence of my surroundings? 
Yes. Is it the confidence of a degree of financial independence? Yes, because that allows you to go, okay, I can say no to that job because I can still pay my rent. But it's also that other level of what we do for well-being and centering. And because the key word in my, my description of that scenario was I got myself in a panicky place. I didn't take a moment. I just was like, oh, my God, I have to do this. I have to do this. How am I going to do this? This is terrible. This is so stressful. And I started that whole huge internal dialogue. And I think the biggest thing when I talk about choice that we all have to learn and I painfully learned is that gap between the feeling and the emotion. There is a gap there where we can just go, okay, I can feel these feelings of panic coming on. I need to stop. I need to stop and work out what what I really want to respond in this situation. And I suppose that then ties into my book because it is a whole lot easier to try and stop and take those moments if you have a place that enables you to do that. And that doesn't necessarily mean physical space, but it means a space where you can just kind of, okay, I need to just look out of the window or I need to sit on my bed and be undisturbed for a while. And I was also thinking this morning, It's no accident that the spaces in which people maybe practice yoga are light and spacious or that a Buddhist temple is so carefully tended. It's to enable you to concentrate on the moment. And the moment is not easy to find sometimes, especially when our kind of limbic system is is scared. Uh, You know, we spend most of our human history scared because we were a middle-ranking ape that could be eaten at any moment when that part of you is playing up it's very difficult isn't it and I think that something which spoke to me about your book is that on the face of it I look at your book happy inside I was thinking about what is success well it's about being happy inside so then you dig into well okay what makes me personally as an individual happy inside and and it's it's kind of this general awakening, almost this permission we allow ourselves to follow back to your first point, what it is that makes me happy. Where are my values? Where does that sit? And how do I pursue them? And when I do get caught up in that fear, that really old part of the brain that that is in all of us, when I get caught up in that, it's very hard to take a moment. And we shouldn't then use that as a thing to berate ourselves where we haven't been able to take pause and maybe we've reacted in an instinctive or impulsive way. So what I'd love to do is, is ask you for just a couple of practical things that you've been able to use that have allowed you to almost follow your values or change your life, change your environment for the better. Well, if we take life first, I think the kind of that age-old mantra of just count to ten in anything. It can feel like a lifetime, but actually it's 10 seconds. It just provides that pause. It forces a pause. It forces you, like you say, to just disengage from that primitive part of our brain, which is brilliant and instinctive and guttural and absolutely and many times to be trusted, but can also be impulsive. And it's it's the text message sent too quickly because it provokes that emotional response. Just count to 10 and think, could I perceive this in another way? On a practical level in my surroundings, I know that having clutter of any sort, and yet it's not things, having clutter around me affects my soul. 
I can't think straight if there's dirt or piles or mess or just unnecessary gubbins around me. And yet, if you look around my home, I have plenty of things. I love my things. I think our things are, I think I call them like the talismans of your life. This is my story. I mean, there's loads of quirky, strange things like a paint sample that's hardened in a little bowl right here on my shelf. But I love the color of it. And I remember when I was choosing that color. That's within your palette. Yes. I, I know this because I've read your book. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> it's not a random bit of dried paint. That's it's within not your a palette. random bit. I mean, that, that would be the thing. It's, it's choice. There's chosen. If this was a color I didn't like and I just hadn't bothered to throw it away, that would be quite something different. But this to me is like it's a little bit of sunshine caught because it's a really vivid, slightly chartreuse yellow that we're talking here. But I think it's all that other stuff, the unnecessary stuff, the stuff that has no story for us, the stuff that has no meaning, the things that just sort of gather. I mean, we talked earlier about the kind of the daily admin. I mean, you know, a lot of that is inevitable, but I think one of my quick home hacks is I have two very ordinary clipboards and all those little bits of paper that come through the letterbox that become important but they're kind of annoying get clipped to the clipboard because I don't want to deal with it immediately because I might be in the throes of doing something else but when I get that summons for my water bill and I'm thinking oh good lord what what did I do with it it'll be on the clipboard likewise those bits of paper that we get from school that all become terribly important but it's on the other clipboard one for work one for personal. And then I think the last thing I would say to anyone is have a hook for your keys. The number of people I've seen fretting in the morning, because mornings, you know, when we are ordinarily dropping our children at school or nursery and trying to go somewhere, can be frantic because that's often a time of the day when things have to be achieved by a certain time. And yet the strain people put on themselves because they can't find their handbag, they can't find their keys, it's like a hook. One beautiful hook in the hallway. And that's that's a whole level of stress gone. So I think there are these sort of life hacks that you need to make into habits in the same way that we do not think about cleaning our teeth every morning. So daily meditation, outside time, exercise, they have to become habits. So we're not having to negotiate with ourselves daily to do them. We've just done them. And for me personally, I like to do it in the morning because then it's done. It's like it's almost before I've engaged my thinking brain and then I can get on with it. And I just put myself in a better space and it's better for everyone else, too. I mean, that's the thing. It's a two way thing, isn't it? I'll add a couple that I got from your book that spoke to me on a very personal level. We talked about minimalism, not keeping those just in case items, not clogging your house with, oh, I might use that greater one day and it, you don't it just sits there the other thing that i think is really uh, true from from what you've written is kind of meditating daily or having a practice being able to tap into that but slowing down you know one of my favorite lao tzu quotes and i don't know if this is something you've you've quoted but nature does not hurry yet everything is accomplished and i think in this industrial age that we live in the mantra is the opposite of that you know everyone has to hurry Otherwise, you're slacking. If you're not present, then you're not available. And what hurrying does and actually not being in a state, a relaxed state, is it, by again, bypasses the part of our brain which is creative, which plans, and we end up in that, that scared little ape 
part where we're just reacting to everything. And you see that in, in lots of offices, certainly lots of offices that I've, I've done work in. So those are bits of your book that really spoke to me. It's why the word strive is actually one of my most loathed words because it implies not effort. Effort is good, but it implies this sort of effort against all the odds that you just you have to just keep going. And it's like, actually, you don't. And that speed that you refer to, I think, is almost completely exactly why we are in the situation that we are now. Life was moving at a pace that too many people simply couldn't cope with. And this wasn't because there was something lacking in them. It's because it's going too fast. It's not giving anyone a chance to make considered judgments about anything. And a lot of the consumerism that we see is people looking to kind of soothe and salve their wounds. If I buy this, I'll feel better. I'll feel better about myself. If I, even the way I sometimes think that our, our medical world is going, it's like, well, actually, if you don't have time to exercise, that's okay. Have a vitamin drip, do it in 30 minutes, or now actually sit inside this cocoon and it's equivalent to climbing a mountain. And yet we champion this as advances. And somehow I find myself thinking, I'm not sure it is at all. But then equally, when we talk about meditation, I think everyone has to find their own path to this. Because I think a lot of people maybe are afraid of meditation because they think, oh, God, I, you know, I can't sit cross-legged. I can't chant. You know, I, where, how am I going to do this? And it's it can be anything, but it is just that moment, like we took a moment of stillness before starting to talk. It can be just that you just sit with your feet flat on the floor, your hands on your thighs, and just listen to your heartbeat. Because I find that also really connects you with your humanity. You realize that you are a, a living, breathing, beating being. And I think there's something kind of amazing about that. You know, I like to visualize my blood pumping around my body. And it just, I think we can forget that in all these like terribly screen-based sort of existence that we're having. And I mean, it's why I also, I love to exercise. I love to feel my body working and being used. And yet I often despair that people spend more time and attention looking after their cars. You know, we are legally obliged to put your car in for a service every year. And yet do people have a, a bodily service? I think that it's what you said. It's about anything that takes you out of the fear loop in your brain, anything that brings you back into your body that allows you to center, whether it's, as you say, putting your hand on your heart and checking back in with yourself, whether it is chanting, having a mantra, that's fine too, or sitting on the tube in relative non-silence, whatever works for you. It's about intention and balance. And I know those are two words that feature in your book as chapter headings. These are important things. But it strikes me that everything, even, you know, I didn't know how the conversation was going to go, but everything we've talked about has been about intention and balance, whether it's intention in our, of, of our lives, of how we live, of, of the values that we honor, whether it's the balance in our bodies of taking time out and, and recognizing that we are this balance of, you know, reactive brain and considered brain. So just building on that intention and, and sort of balance piece, you just mentioned that before COVID, you know, I think I read you put it as something like normal wasn't working. And we've become, you know, more fearful as a society. And we, we're kind of living this kind of life, which isn't 
as you say, there's no MOT for our body or mind or emotionally or anything like that. When you see that, how does it make you feel? And two questions, where has it come from? And what are you doing personally to kind of get that balance back? I think I see two things. I see a large picture of the global rise in chronic disease, obesity, diabetes, mental health disorders. And I see the small picture, or not the small picture, but the the personal picture of the demands being made on me. And it's not even so much the demands, it's the assumed normality of those demands, that, that this push to be constantly available, this the tone of emails, the like, can you get back to me? The 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 fact that we have to remind people you can switch off notifications. And I remember something that I always used to say to a colleague is that someone else's urgent doesn't necessarily have to be mine. You know, we do not have to be always available. I mean, I remember the times when we didn't carry around these incredible computers in our pockets. If we were out, then we were not available to take a phone call. I mean, yes, that had inconveniences with it, but also it gave us, I suppose, there's a freedom, a freedom from other people's obligations. The society we've created goes against who we are as a species on a very fundamental level, that we need to be safe, we need to be secure, we do need to be stimulated, we need community, we need gathering, we are innately social creatures too, so we do need to come together, but life hasn't has started to not allow this because everything has to be faster, quicker, quicker. It's the inbuilt obsolescence. It's the constant upgrade. It's the talking to someone who's just replaced their phone because a new one's come out. And yet there was nothing wrong with the old one. What is it that makes them feel they have to do that? Are they a better person with the newer phone? You know, it's our advertising. It's the pressure. It's the blame culture, too, that, you know, that our children are going awry because of TikTok and Instagram. These are platforms. You can't, don't shoot the messenger. Something is going wrong way before this. And a lot of it, I think, is something to do with we can all be the best parents and managers and all that kind of thing when we can focus just on being a good parent or manager or employee. That's the pressure of the moment, isn't it? I think if we, in this sort of pandemic situation, it's not necessarily the fact that we are locked down in our homes. It's not necessarily the homeschooling. It's not necessarily the 24-7 parenting. All of these things we signed up for, it's not even our jobs. But when you try and push those all together, it's impossible. And right now I see so many people trying, striving to do this and needing to be given permission to be told it is not possible to do what we're being asked to do something has to give and it's within our choice to decide okay what's going to give for me personally the homeschooling I see some of it as things that we can dip into because he needs to be occupied and engaged but I think there's also this slight sort of absence of perspective because he's not alone in this it's happening to everyone he will catch up we will all catch up. We will, we will evolve. We'll adapt. He's learning different things. What about resilience? When we talk about this lost generation, that doesn't help them. It doesn't help them at all. They're not lost. 
we're just navigating a new route and we will get through it. But we need to get through it with a little bit more courage and conviction and resilience. And that's not to take anything away from the very real horror, obviously, that some people are talking about. But that's my personal perspective and my personal position. So I know other people, I mean, I have ample space, I have access to a computer, I have outdoor space. For those people struggling in small urban apartments with no access to outdoors, I I mean, it, it makes me weep with frustration. But if they're also being kind of pushed to still achieve in normal circumstances, it's impossible. But equally, I weep for the person that is in a small urban environment with children and no outside space. This isn't a way to live. We cannot expect ourselves as people, as a species, to thrive in these deeply abnormal ways that we've we've put people. It's funny, actually, I'm, I'm writing a book at the moment and I've just been, before speaking to you, writing the chapter about why, my take on why we're here. My take on why suicide, depression, anxiety, the gap between rich and poor, uh, people's happiness in the developed nations and the non-undeveloped nations, is it's all getting worse. And you can't move away from one point which stares us all in the face but isn't very fashionable because it kind of requires us to take a step back and take individual responsibility instead of waiting for the next politician that we all get excited about, vote for change every five years in a long unending cycle and and I think that fact is that there's been no little or no design in how we've lived uh, how we've developed you mentioned a species level let's look at it on that level there's been no design to that at all um, we've we've evolved and we had a massive mutation in our history 20,000 years ago where we developed this huge brain we moved to the top of the food chain but we haven't taken that position with integrity and we haven't stopped to go, hold on, is this right? Are we using this superpower in the right way? And I think the uncomfortable truth, if you go beyond all the symptoms that you've just described, and we can throw in environmentalism in there as well, our, our, you know, we're the only species that's actively destroying its own habitat. Um, the, the uncomfortable truth is that we have to now redesign it, and we have to now look back and say, okay, this system of gross domestic product, consumerism at all costs, whether you're making a warhead or you're making a toaster, whether you're making either of those things, it's good because it's making jobs and it's driving the economy and our gross domestic product is growing. We have to take that inconvenient truth on board and we have to say, actually, it's not working. And the answer is not organized politics or organized ideologies like communism or socialism the answer is change from within when do we wake up and realize this short-term thinking it, it isn't working for us <laughs> it never has and responsibility when do we wake up and realize that actually me recycling makes a difference me changing my energy supply it makes a difference because for so long there was this a will to hope that well it was in hand that we'd done enough 
And now we're realizing that, well, maybe you did, but it wasn't enough. I mean, I am an eternal optimist. I'm what I call an optimistic realist. I believe we have hope. I believe that we can be as brilliant as we have been so destructive. I believe that we are evolving, but I also believe that we have come to this point for a reason. And one of those reasons is that we are not the omnipotent ones. We are not in charge. You know, we are the newcomers in this sort of evolutionary tussle. And we've been laid low by an invisible predator, by something we can't even see. And if that isn't the sort of great reckoner to really just sort of put us in our place, then I'm not quite sure what is. And my hope is that we as individuals and communities learn from what we've been shown and to reflect back on your point about minimalism i think it's been remarkable how many people have reflected on oh i didn't really need to go and do all that shopping did i when life has been reduced to the essentials there is joy to be found from food shopping apparently there is some stat that says that we are wasting less Maybe this is because we're at home and we're cooking more and we're being more inventive with our leftovers. I don't know. But there's something kind of marvelous about that. The fact that people are baking, you know, doing jigsaw puzzles, a lot of analog kind of pursuits, because these are inherently soothing. And people have turned to them, not because they read some article saying, you know, this is what you should be doing right now, because this is the cool thing. They turn to them from that intuitive sense that goes, actually, this is this is nice. This feels good. This calms me. This is when the world beyond my door is gone completely nuts. I could just sit here and do a jigsaw. And actually, this is pretty great. It's also perhaps we can start to engage with these sort of temples of consumerism in the same way that we engage with galleries. But there's nothing wrong with looking. Look, enjoy. Yes, look, there's the magnificent thing. So we have incredibly creative makers and producers but it doesn't mean you have to buy it. It reminds me too of the laments I heard from people sometimes buying the magazine when I was editing Elle Decoration. That's like, oh, but this month you told me that this was in and that this was the color I should be following. And next month you did this one. To which I was always slightly flabbergasted. I said, yeah, but it's a magazine. What a magazine does is show you what's out there, but it's up to you to choose. Don't just absorb this wholesale. You know, you engage your brain. You decide what you want. And in fact, there's way more confidence from going, actually, I've got a wall to ceiling bookshelf filled with all my things. But every single one of those things has meaning and value and has been chosen for a purpose. And you point to any one of them and I will tell you the story of my life at that moment. To be surrounded by things like that is to be in an environment that supports you, that sustains you, that's authentic and valid and real and is probably more effective as a medicine against today's ills than anything that you're ever going to find in a bottle. And so that minimalism of mindset is simply at every juncture going, do I need this? How does this add to my life? And we can apply that even to partnerships. I remember my father always saying to me, Michelle, you need to find a man that adds to your life. Okay, you are complete in yourself, in your incompleteness, but find someone who adds to it. And that's not filling a hole. 
And I think we can see that in the way that we rear children and parent. They're not mini us. They're autonomous beings. We brought them into being and now we have to let them blossom as themselves. You know, we don't own them. I'm going to take that quote for my girls, by the way. So thank you, Mr. Agundahan, because you're so right. They are their own people, even at two. Uh, they are they are not mini-me's, and that's a very important distinction. Again, what you're describing is almost we're taking control back. So instead of living in that autopilot where I just see things pop into a feed that I'm looking at for some other reason, and I then buy it in an impulse because it's made me feel good for a second or it's made me feel inadequate for a second, I'm actually going beyond that. And And the tools to go beyond that are the things we've discussed, you know, um, having practice, coming in touch with your own authenticity, what makes you tick. But there are some broad things, aren't there, that make us all tick. And you touched on one just now. We need community and we need family. There is there is a biological reason for it. It's chemical within us. The, the, the oxytocin and the other chemicals that are released within us, when we interact with family, loved ones, even good friends, is important. It keeps us real within ourselves and it gives us that intention back i'd love to hear your view on on that because i know you've got a young son yourself and a side question how on earth do you manage to keep his toys in a box because that's something my wife was like just uh, can you ask michelle how on earth she manages that so yeah could talk a bit about family and then please tell us how you managed to do that yeah, family, connection, community, all of these things, absolutely vital. Again, though, I would say in the much the same way that we talked about meditation, we need to find our own family. It doesn't necessarily have to be the blood relatives. We find our own community, our like-minded souls. We also need a measure of difference. We need opposing views. We need conversation. We need provocation. We, we do need this as well. If we only surround ourselves with people that agree with everything that we agree with, I think that can also be limiting. But there's a point in life when you're ready to take that, when you're ready to say in a conversation, okay, I, I don't agree with you, but let's agree to disagree, that I'm not going to try and pummel you down with my point of view. I'm just going to be able to leave it sort of out there, but equally be able to say, well, you've given me a different perspective. I hadn't thought about that in that way. I mean, there's a great Joan Didion quote that says something like kind of, I write in order to work out what I'm thinking. And I'm very much like that. I need to use that medium to construct my thoughts. Sometimes I have the thoughts, but the the work that I try to do or that I enjoy is weaving the thoughts together. I feel all the impulses. I see all the things I'm responding to. I know they're connected, but it takes me a while sometimes to work out what the connection is. In many ways, the book is the result of that. It is the result of a decade of moving through different places and experiencing the effects those spaces have had on me, positive and negative, and then trying to put that down into almost like a toolkit for people. So one thing I noted as well, when we're talking about family and the kind of oxytocin we feel from being hugged or touched, this is one of my hugest things with the home that everyone can do is we must surround ourselves with texture. I mean, literally, my walls have got texture on them. I'm sitting on a velvet cushion. I've got a sheepskin behind me. I'm wearing a top that actually, ironically, seems to be made out of velvet. 
the things that we touch every day trigger that same hormone. We need our homes and our furniture to literally give us a hug because for some people, they're not getting it anywhere else. And otherwise, we're missing a huge opportunity. And again, I think it's something very practical that we can do that reconnects us to our essential humanity. And I suppose one of the strongest things I wanted to convey in the book and in our conversation now is that this is not fickle stuff. To buy a cushion can sound so lightweight, but actually for some people right now, to hug a cushion is going to be the best thing ever. You know, to pummel a cushion when we're angry has the same kind of emotional response, but to curl like a child on a sofa surrounded by cushions is to have created the equivalent of, a, of an animal's den, the den that they escape to. They escape to that because they know they need it. We seem to have created spaces without dens, with this kind of pursuit of the open plan, because magazines, including the one I used to edit, were advocating, let's get rid of the wall between the dining room, let's get rid of the one between the kitchen. Fine if you have enough space to also have the den, but for many people they didn't. And we're realizing now, even if it's to accommodate homeworking, that we need a room of our own. We need space to retreat and to rest and to be silent. And it doesn't have to be huge, but it is understanding that we need this. The human species needs this. We need to retreat to the cave a little. And then on toys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How do you do it, please? <laughs> um, two things. Right now, he's six, six and a half. His bedroom, I can't even walk across the floor because it's covered in Lego. There are boxes given for the Lego to return to. But as he kind of points out to me as I sort of, ah, this morning at him, was, but, mummy, I'm trying to find the pieces I need. And if I put them all back in the box, I just need to take them out again. His room, he gets a bit of a free pass. That's his room. That's his little piece of the world. In the main living space, though, there are two baskets. The main living space is the space that we share at the end of every day, the things have to get picked up. When he was smaller, you make it a game. It's that thing, you know, the child's competitive instinct. It's like, I bet I can pick more pieces up than you can. You know, who's going to fill the basket up soon? You make it a game. It's not a chore. And it also, but it becomes also a habit in the same way that they teach the habit at school. At school, they don't get to leave their pencils all over the place at the end of the day. They have tidy up time. So it's exactly the same. You instill tidy up time. And I think, there is something on the sort of bigger picture of that, the living together as families, is that sometimes, particularly women, I think, we take it on our shoulders to be the housekeepers, to always replace the toothpaste tube, to always replace the toilet roll. And we get incredibly frustrated when other family members don't do that. But if we always do it, they don't learn that sometimes they have to. Just a couple of comments. Firstly, you reminded me of a note I wrote to myself when I read your book, which is Michelle doesn't hold back. Yeah, I think there's one quote that I love because not sometimes with with books like yours, you know, called Happy Inside, and it's about you know the the fine art of of wellness. Sometimes they can be you know or perceived to be quite soft and you know a little bit kind of fluffy. 
But yours, <laughs> I know there's one quote where you're like, if you don't like your kid, I'm paraphrasing, forgive me, but if you don't like your kid's stuff all over the house, maybe you shouldn't have had kids, which I just thought that's, that's, cutting, that, that's cutting to it. And that's, uh, it's something that I've often thought, you know, we have to celebrate our kids. And it, yes, it is annoying when, like the BBC reporter clip that we've all seen, my kids run in when I'm having a, a chat, a, a meeting, but it's much better that I'm around them rather than squirreling off to a major city for 10 hours a day. So, so firstly, uh, the directness is, is very helpful. And I think it's helpful to a lot of people because this stuff is not fluffy. This is the, this is the fabric of how we move forward as, as a, as a people individually, and then hopefully collectively. The, the second thing I, I wanted to just comment on is your palette. Now, there's there's a section of the book which, again, you might think you, you come across it and it's like, okay, work out your palette, you know. And here's here's some really easy ex exercises of how you can work out what colors, textures, etc., have meaning to you. And again, it can from the outside it might look try. Oh, who's got time? You know, this classic. Like, I've got time to sit in ten back to back Zoom meetings, but I haven't got time to do a half an hour exercise that might bring a genuine shift in my my life and my intention and my balance and all the things we've talked about. This stuff is not for ju just for people, you know, yummy mummies at home. This stuff helps, you know, like you say, when you see your house as a reflection of you, that's reinforcing every day because you're in it every day, whether you're commuting or like we're all at home at the moment, it's reinforcing that authenticity. It's reminding you of who you are which means that when you do get into situations that you talked about earlier with your old boss, you have that core and it's been reinforced, that core of who is Michelle? What does she value? What is she going to do in this situation? Not what she thinks she should do or what she thinks others want her to do, but who is she? So just that idea of taking the time to go, actually, I like bumpy wood. You know, it can be as technical as that. You know, I, I, like, oh, I like mustard as a color. And then applying that with a cheap tin of paint to your home, I think it goes beyond fluffiness. And it certainly has for me. Well, <laughs> my work is done. I mean, <laughs> it's interesting, though, that chapter, for a long time, I wondered whether it ought to be at the end of the book. I was a little concerned that people might be put off because we can get into kind of, okay, why are we doing this? Know thyself. Then we talk about intention and clearing. And then I dive straight into what is the longest chapter of the book. And it's pretty meaty. There's a lot of information in there. And yet, make no mistake, it all revolves around the palette. It all revolves around, as you say, surrounding yourself with materials, colors, finishes, fittings that you have consciously chosen. But that also, again, goes hand in hand with why there are no pictures in the book or why it's not filled with pictures of lounges and living rooms and dining rooms and kitchens from all over the place that I have picked, that I deem correct, because that isn't the point. Because if your signature finish is leopard skin with a side order of glitter, and then throw in some purple and some stripes, if that is what you've you met, love. You've met my, you've met my daughter, have you? 
and how spectacular does she look when she puts that all she together is. with a tutu and her welly boots, yeah? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. These are the moments when we, we can learn so much from our children because we can look at them and we know that she consciously would have chosen that and how magnificent and even better that you stride out with her looking like that because she put that outfit together herself. It's like my son wears odd socks. It's something he started doing. I have never once tried to correct. I'm putting inverted commas fingers up here him because that's him. If that's what he wants to choose, then that's brilliant. And that's the same thing with the palette. It's allowing yourself to go, actually, you know what? I love this. And equally, I don't like the color of the year as dictated by whoever. And with that comes that authenticity that you're talking about. And with that comes, again, my mind is jumping around here. You reference the newsreaders with their children coming in the background. And what I saw when I saw that was like, now I'm seeing all of the person. We present so many of these fronts that I am newsreader, I am serious, I'm talking about something very, very important. But that person is also a human being with a family. And that starts to reflect back to us. It's tricky. It's difficult having children. It's difficult having partners. It's difficult being in the space that we are. Our jobs are often difficult, but we are multifaceted beings. And the more we can become comfortable with embracing all sides of ourselves and then writing that story loud and proud around us, then I begin to get very excited for, without putting too grandiose a framework around it, for the possibilities for ourselves as a species because we're allowing ourselves to be. And I hereby hope that we do enter a new era of reality where we need to call it like it is slightly i mean you know it is like if you can't even make your bed then you're not going to conquer the world if you want to live in the super highway of life then don't pollute your body and the only other thing i would sort of add to that is don't believe everything you think yeah not here but think yeah yeah because again it that's bi that's biological it's our fear module keeping us alert in case that large mammal behind us wants to eat us. It's throwing these thoughts. I think I read the other day we have 40,000 thoughts a day. A lot of those thoughts are coming just to keep us safe. Um, it's completely out of date. I mean, it is, you're right. It is, it is useful, the amygdala, for a lot of things. But it's also very unhelpful because it's completely out of date. We don't have saber-toothed tigers living next to us anymore. But talking about work and just you did touch just then on 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 the newsreader and aren't we all living like that now by the way um, so you know he, he at least he had some run into it what's your take on the industrial way that we work because something that's struck me whenever I talk to people who who talk about the things you're talking about living with more intention being true to your own values taking the time out not to just be on autopilot and go through life responding to emails and prompts and notifications and goodness knows what else is that we talk about this system of living that we've created without design but it, it strikes me also that we've created a pretty rubbish system of working as well in that we are social beings but we don't need to be thrown together arbitrarily with people just like the intention of choosing the cushion we don't need to be thrown together if we haven't chosen that person to work together 
that that can be something that again we need to take our intention and take responsibility for so being thrown together in massive corporations as as i've been in my career is always jarred with me a bit because it goes against a lot of the things you've been talking about it's kind of a keep your head down culture a lot of the time when actually it seems to me what we're discussing is the opposite of that dressing in purple with glitter if that's you and and it's that lack of conformity that allows us to really flourish and be the best we can be and not be that be that fearful little ape I, I talk about this idea of entrepreneurship where we, t- we, we kind of look back at the hunter-gatherers, which we were for most of our history, and create our own job. You know, don't ask for permission to be successful, but be that purple glitter person if that's who we are. What's your view on that? What's your view on work? Firstly, I think I would challenge that you ever have to be in a corporation and stay head down. I think that is denying yourself at your core. We need to work kind of earlier in this whole cycle of life. So as parents to our children to instill in them the ability and the right to stand up for things they believe in and be able to also take it if someone goes, okay, I hear you, but you're wrong. Or I hear you, but I'm not going to change what I'm doing. I think in many ways, this is the essence of parenting, isn't it? You know, but I want sweeties. You cannot have sweeties, but I've been good. I don't care, or, you know, said in a slightly better way. This is stuff they learn. So we start, try and start that from the beginning. But if we, as individuals, start from where we are, thinking of myself, you kind of need to be at the table in order to play cards. I get that. We cannot affect change on the big corporations at a distance. We can campaign, we can write petitions, we can send letters, but the most effective change does come from within, within a corporation, within ourselves. So we need to get there to be at that table. But we must find a path to get there without compromising ourselves. But I think we always have a duty almost to speak up. I mean, if I look back at my career, and there was this crunch point where a cover that I had designed that really was going against the grain everything if you imagine had gone quite white and gray and normal safe and I felt this was exactly the moment when we needed to shout out our point of difference and so it was a very vivacious cover let's say and I had my kind of publishing director more or less saying I want you to go with a sort of white safe cover And it was one of those moments when I thought this completely betrays everything I stand for, everything my team has worked for, everything I believe right now. And at that point in my life, I had the courage, the conviction, the passion to say, no, but here's the deal. We are going to go with my cover. And if it tanks, you can fire me because I will not be the right editor for this magazine anymore. If I go with the cover that you're telling me you want me to go with, then I'm not editing this magazine. So I'm still not the right editor for you. And they were very nervous about it, but then they agreed. And I'd love to tell you that like 99% of the people loved my cover. They didn't, but 50% did. And that was enough. 
And we ran with that cover. It did perfectly well and they never bothered me again. And that was one moment when I realised the line had been drawn. In some jobs, in some positions, all companies need the person that's going to stand up and go, I think there's another way. I don't think this is right. I need to challenge it. We know that all great change comes from provocateurs. It comes from when the world zigs, you have to zag. We need to challenge. We need to challenge the status quo, otherwise it doesn't change. Before we we finish today, it would be remiss of me not to talk about your current work, which we're seeing you on, on the BBC, Interior Design Masters. And I think Talking about not being scared, I think anyone who can hold their own with Lawrence Llewellyn Bowen and Alan Carr is is probably uh, not at the mercy of of their, of their amygdala. Uh, you definitely hold your own, and you you don't hold back. and And it's that kind of directiveness that we need, you know, from, from people. We need to know people can be very direct when it comes to hard nosed business or politics, but when you come to what's in quotes the softer things, the things in my view that really matter being present, knowing your values, all the things that we've talked about today. We don't, we're not hard enough and, and we're not direct enough. How do you find this new line of work, if you like? I know you did a series before, but how, how is it for you? TV is an unusual medium. I first did it because I, I think, you know, you do those talking head things where they just want you to come on and spout about a particular subject. And I did it because it was a way to get out of the office. And, you know, someone's asking me my opinion on something that I know a lot about. No problem. Then I think I did Grand Designs, the house of the year. And it was such a joy and a privilege to get access to these homes and talk to the owners but that I wouldn't have seen or met otherwise. But it was about the stories. It was just the joy of talking to someone about what they've done. And so when I'm doing that, I genuinely forget that there's a camera. And then interior design masters, it's the same thing. Those designers become like my children. I care so much about them because I am someone who cries watching athletics, okay? <laughs> because it's like the desire to win, the, 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 you know, the pressure they put themselves under. They care so much about this. This means so much to them and I want to help them. It's the same motivation behind the book. I want to help people. So the program that you see is always, of course, an edit. So, yeah, they use the one phrase where I say, I think you've been a bit lazy. You don't get to see all the other bit where I also tell her what was brilliant about what she did and what I see in her and what I believe she is capable of. Because actually you'll see that next week. And my hope is in this series, in fact, that, We did talk a lot about belief and self-belief and the fact that why were they crying? They're crying because this is making them evolve. One of the designers really struggled with the fact that this was digging so deep into her emotions and she didn't understand why is this happening to me through design? And it's like because design is an expression of who you are. It's making you push yourself and you're doing it on a budget, to a timetable, on TV, being judged, which is such a horrible word as well. You know, what right do I have to judge? So I do feel I have no right to judge, but I do, I am trying to help them. And to your point, sometimes you just need to tell people how it is. 
You know, there's too much namby-pambing. And maybe that just comes because I've always said about myself, I don't really get a hint. I don't know, maybe there's something missing in the way my brain fires. But when people hint at something, I end up saying to them, I'm sorry, what is it you're trying to tell me? Do you like this? Do you not like this? Does this not work? Am I annoying you? Is this, am I waffling? You know, just tell me. Just tell me what it is and then we can move on. And I think there does need to be more than that. But then it's also my path of evolution is to also learn to soften some of that. And I think one of the biggest things that I learned as managing a team was that you really do need to modulate your communication individually to each and every different people. Some people can just take it like this doesn't work. I don't like it. Try this. And they're like, brilliant. Okay, I'm on it. Someone else, they need all that soft stuff first. And that was a real kind of learning curve to me. But, you know, the the emperor's new clothes, it's a parable for a reason, isn't it? But equally, we all feel fear. I mean, I tell you the great story about the covers, but there are other stories of things where I capitulated because I thought, well, I'm not sure. We don't make mistakes, we learn. So in the times I capitulated, you kind of go, hmm, I was wrong. I was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. I'm not doing that next time. So I think you can make a mistake once. It's life. You make a second time. This is not great because you're not learning. The third time, you're a fucking idiot. And make no (laughs) two bones about it. Well, it's very entertaining. Happy Inside, How to Harness the Power of Home for Health and Happiness by Michelle Agundahan is out now and it's really a book about more than just organizing your home and picking your palette and I think it's the journey that we're all taking now whether we like it or not post hopefully coming into post-pandemic uh, we can make changes now we are around family more we are in nature more we do cook for ourselves more we're doing this stuff it's being forced upon us let's embrace it and let's let's move forward uh, together so, Michelle, thank you so much for joining me today. It's an absolute pleasure to speak to you and uh, can't wait to see the next episode. Thank you. I have taken away from this so much. So thank you so much. Hi, Rowan here again. I just wanted to ask a simple favour. Now, since I set out to do this podcast series, my ambition has always been to provide a new narrative, a different storyline that gives people permission to act on their own terms. A message that's perhaps counter to the accepted norms, accepted norms that maybe don't serve us. And I'm doing this because I believe, in fact, I know there are people who are unsatisfied with the way things work at the moment, what's expected of them, what's going on around them, what's going on in the world, what they need to do every day just to make a living and survive. Now, I believe that everyone has the right to live and work from a place of purpose. And so I'm trying to get this message out to the benefit of as many people who need to hear it as possible. So I wanted to ask you, if you find these podcasts useful, Whether you'd be willing to recommend Self-Centred to just one other person that you think might benefit from listening this week. I'd really appreciate it. I hope they'll appreciate it. I hope you'll feel good for doing it. And I'd just like to thank you again for listening and supporting the series so far.